This is the second episode in our series on women's rebellion in the 20th century, which, to the discomfort of at least one person that we know of, we have called Power to the Pussy. In the first episode, we looked at the suffragette movement in the UK prior to World War I. This was a widespread and multifaceted movement, which included many, many different women. But it culminated in the martyrdom of Emily Davidson, who put herself directly in the way of the misogynistic establishment through rebellion, protest, and hunger striking, but who also put herself directly in the way of a fast-galloping horse, which promptly smashed into her and turned her into a powerful symbol. Her sacrifice put on full display the lengths women were willing to go to to cast off the ignominy of established social disenfranchisement. It's definitely worth listening to if you haven't already done so. But if you're stubbornly sitting there, rebelling against the structure of episode order, and resisting the urge to start this story from the beginning, then more power to you. This series is the brainchild of Dominic Reviglio, who has researched, written, and presented it as a part of our coup de pod concept, with a guest host takeover. Thankfully, Dom whose passion for this topic is so fierce that even when slowed down electronically by 10%, she can still wax lyrical about it at a million words a minute, is back with the second installment. Please excuse her inability to correctly pronounce the word women. Apparently, it's a South African thing, when here we were always thinking it was just a New Zealander thing. For those of you who are thinking... This whole coup de pod thing is just an excuse for you guys to sit back on your laurels and let a woman do all the work. This is entirely true, but at least we're not stopping her from doing all the work. So indeed, it seems progress has been made, unless I haven't been following properly. Anyway, without too much further ado, and fully in lieu of me talking to you, it is going to be Dom to carry us through with part two. Adieu. From the moment we are born, we are told we must obey. It's a mistake to rebel, treason to defy. Change is a dreaded thing, until it's not. These are the stories of those who disobey and their acts of defiance, world-changing or inconsequential. The characters who forged their own paths, and the cycles of change driven by women and men willing to stand up, look authority in the face, and say, stuff you, and stuff what you tell me. Incredible gains may have been made for women in Western societies during the First World War, like the right to vote. But pretty soon afterwards, the momentum of the movement became halted by post-war social conditions. Historian Thomas Hammer said that he had, quote, observed that anti-feminist feeling during the interwar period was just as strong as it had been up until the war, end quote. Mainly in the UK, but also to an extent in other Western nations, the roles which women played during the war forced changes to gender-based social expectations after it. The preconceptions of Western middle-class femininity were challenged by the requirements the war placed on women, especially as regarded their appearance. How women in Britain were dressing in general in 1918 was notably different to four years earlier. The clothes women wore had to accommodate manual labour and not just baking cakes. 
long dresses turned into trousers, and short skirts, jewellery and corsets had to be discarded as no metal could be worn in factories. And women could now rock short hair as long hair hanging over early 20th century machinery was an easy way to be decapitated. Most importantly, the assumptions and social expectations made of women and the judgments of what we were and were not capable of was shattered as women pushed the limits of endurance during the war in and out of the workforce. Protective legislation was abolished. These were pre-war laws which had originally been put in place to reduce employment available to women with the intent to protect jobs for men. The language though often disguised these as laws meant to protect women against the difficulties of certain paid work. One of the biggest problems at the end of World War I, which would be repeated again after World War II, was that thousands of men returning from the trenches found themselves without work, as most available jobs were not occupied by women. This was problematic. These men had just fought for their countries and livelihoods. Returning home to be told there was no work, money or part for you to play in a society which you had personally sacrificed so much for, did not sit too well with these veterans. Whether they'd been sitting in a blood-soaked trench or screaming on a hospital bed, the thought of a peaceful future, one where you may come home to a clean, warm house and a wife whose existence all day had been dedicated to them, would have given the soldiers slight comfort in such terrible times. A returning soldier didn't want to come home to an empty house and a wife who had been out all day working. Women had also unionized during the war, whether in traditional jobs such as hat makers or non-traditional jobs such as factories. Then when the war was over, most governments and much of the trade union leadership had wished, much like Cher, they could turn back time. They not only wanted to give these returning soldiers their jobs back, but they also wanted to pay women who remained in work less wages than men. Unions could stand in the way of this. One method they utilized to push women out of these jobs was by using typical gender stereotypes. You know, the most Neanderthal argument they can come up with. They did so by citing the female physique as a reason why women should not work in factories or hard labor. Their argument was, since women were smaller, weaker and fragile little dolls, having them continue to work in these physically demanding jobs for long periods of time would cause irreparable damage which could lead to maternal or wifehood problems. An example of this was at the 1918 Trade Union Congress in the UK. The Birmingham Brass Workers Union claimed that women should be prevented from doing heavy laborers jobs to stop their physical degeneration. A delegate from the National Women's Federation retorted by saying, quote, why, bless my soul, a woman who carries a child carries a heavy weight, end quote. Another woman named Miss Simmons added by saying, quote, we want women on the same footing as men. When a man is taken on, he is not asked to show if he can do the job as much as another man, but a woman has to go through the test. And whenever possible, her wages are reduced." End quote. By the autumn of 1919, 750,000 fewer women were employed in industrial labor than the previous year. So just as soon as women had gained one foot out of the front door, they were pushed straight back into the kitchen. Uh, unfortunately, kind of. They were pushed back straight into traditional gender roles they had been confined to prior to the war. Historian Gail Braden gives a great example of how this message was driven into the social framework by highlighting a typical newspaper put out during the war. At the top of the front cover, a propaganda poster depicts a man dressed in military attire walking out into the rain and cold. 
while his wife is under a blanket by a fireplace inside the safety of her home. Below this would be a photograph of the trench war, showing guts, blood and dead bodies. And as you turn the page, bold letters would read, If victorious, our men will march home and our women will cheer. If defeated, our men will be killed and our women raped. Pray for our boys and do your part for the war effort. Following World War I, as is normal whenever soldiers return home from war, a baby boom occurred. Indeed, as men returned victorious, it seemed the woman did just as the government wished and cheered. The number of births in just England leaped by 45% between 1918 and 1920. But of course, feminists did not just disappear. However, the question of how society should behave given everything they had been through wrought division amongst feminists. This was not exclusive to the UK. Historian Alison Light called the interwar years around the world, quote, a trough in the history of feminism, end quote. The most acknowledged of these divisions emerged between, quote, unquote, old feminists and new feminists. It caused such a lack of unification between women that the fight for women's rights almost ceased altogether. Essentially, once women had achieved partial suffrage in 1918, all the issues which divided them, some of which we explained in the last episode, would resurface. And sadly, women were just unable to assemble as powerful unified front, like the suffragists and the suffragettes had done. New feminists were seen to cater to the needs of returning soldiers. Their approach was labelled as maternalism. They complied too easily to the readjusted expectations of household femininity. The old feminists, those who had adhered to the resistance of the suffragettes prior to the war, bemoaned the loss they saw in the momentum of their cause. They saw new feminism as a naive attempt to better the patriarchal order from within, rather than reshape it altogether. Old feminists saw the structure of society as entirely and inherently misogynistic and untenable. Ray Statue wrote on the subject in 1936 in her essay, our freedom and its results. Quote, Modern young women know amazingly little of what life was like before the war and show a strong hostility to the word feminism and all which they imagine it to connote. They are nevertheless the product of the women's movement and the difficult and confusing contradictions in which they live are partly due to the fact that it is in their generation that the changeover from the old and the new conception of the place of women in society is taking place. End quote. In 1939, the world once again plummeted into a state of war, and once again, women were called up to fill the gaps which men being sent to the front lines had left in the workforce. In the Soviet Union, which had bore the absolute brunt of German aggression during the war, and under the idealized egalitarianism of the ruling force, women took an extremely active position in the war effort, not only in industries and war manufacturing, but also as soldiers. The Ukrainian-Russian Ludmila Pavlichenko, or Lady Death, as she would become famously known, was one of the deadliest snipers of the war. She joined the frontline service at age 25 and was fighting in the defense of Sevastopol until the end of the battle. She had 309 kills under her belt, 300 of which were achieved within her first year of service. 36 different Nazi snipers were sent, one after the other, to kill her. One had 400 kills to his name. But Pavlichenko wasn't called Lady Death for nothing, and she neutralized all of them. In 1943, she was awarded the title 
Euro of the Soviet Union and opted to rather train future snipers than continuing in fighting. Another famous sniper, Rosa Shaninya, or the Invisible Horror, was on the front line at age 19 and killed 10 Nazis within the first few days of service. She became famous for the doublet, a double shot in one breath. Fucking kicking ass! In Nazi-occupied territories, the various resistant movements likewise made use of female operatives. Some made names for themselves by their display of courage, dedication and skill. Hanni Schaft, also known as the Girl of the Red Hair, was a Dutch resistance fighter who undertook many underground missions, including sabotaging and assassinating various Nazi targets. She also assisted in the escape of many Jewish people out of Nazi-occupied Netherlands by stealing ID cards for them. When she was finally caught and taken to the dunes to be executed, less than a month prior to the liberation of the country, the execution went wrong and Honey was only shot in the shoulder. She apparently looked up and said, quote, I'm a better shot, end quote. At that, another officer, Martin Cowper, emptied his machine gun into her back. In America, where the majority of this story will be based, some 350,000 women served in the U.S. armed forces, both at home and abroad. Badass American women gained quite the reputation in the skies. Women could join defense plants, which gave them the opportunity to move into previously male-exclusive jobs, such as the aircraft industry. This industry was majority female by 1943 with women doing jobs such as repairing airplanes or flying airplanes to military bases to be utilized. But one faction of women took to the skies in a more hands-on fashion. They were called the Women's Air Force Service Pilots, or the WASPs, and they became famous by the end of the war. The WASPs were a civilian women's pilot organization. They had no military standing, but they were attached to the U.S. Army Air Force. After completing their training, they were stationed at around 120 air bases and racked up over 60 million miles of flight operations. They undertook various different missions, some including towing targets during live anti-aircraft practices, transporting cargo, or, very often, relieving injured or exhausted male pilots during combat. 38 WASP flyers were killed and some captured as prisoners of war. Yet, they were denied any formal recognition until the 10th of March 2010, when they were finally awarded the prestigious Congressional Gold Medal. Well, I guess, better fucking late than never. Women have always experienced oppression, but one can say without a doubt that women within minority groups had to bear the biggest burden of disenfranchisement. African-American women had major challenges finding fair-paying jobs. The U.S. Navy, for instance, did not allow black women to join the ranks till 1944, and segregation was practiced in the U.S. armed forces until 1948. Yes, even in our most dire times, when humans attempt to band together to fight oppression, there's still time for racism. African-American women could only serve in black-only units, and black nurses could only attend to black soldiers and Nazi POWs. Although factories allowed African-American women to work there, and this did enable them to expand their skill set and also earn higher wages, it was bittersweet, as they would all be fired after the war and forced back into low-paying sectors of the economy, if they could find jobs at all. In many parts of the country, black women could find little greater employment than as housekeepers, so maids. Although all of these brave women had stood side by side of their male counterparts during the war, history began to repeat itself when it ended, as returning soldiers once again pushed for gender stereotypes to return to the norm.
What we saw in Britain following World War I, we saw again in the US following World War II. Oh, what a strange coincidence! The baby boom in America started exactly nine months after the war had ended. By 1946, the birth rate had jumped from 20.5 to 26.5. That's babies born per thousand people per year. Once more, social demands for the needs of people recovering from a war meant expectations towards women pushed them back towards the household. Guidebooks were created for women as how they must behave, and training seminars were set up for women in order to create the perfect 1950s Hausfrau. How cute. One of the most used guidebooks, called The Good Wife's Guide, came out in 1955 and had some instructive tips for women to follow. Tip number two in the guidebook said, Most men are hungry when they come home and the prospect of a good meal, especially his favorite dish, is part of a warm welcome needed. Number three helpfully suggested, Prepare yourself, take 15 minutes to rest so you'll be refreshed when he arrives. Touch up your makeup, put a ribbon in your hair, and be fresh looking. He has just been with lots of work-weary people. Number 10. You may have dozens of important things to tell him, but the moment of his arrival is not the time. Let him talk first. Remember, his topics of conversation are more important than yours. And finally, my personal favorite, number 18, a good wife always knows her place. So with their makeup, fancy haircuts, aprons and high heels, the world would now move into the 1960s with women put firmly back into their place. But these were different times to any seen before, struggling out of the global trauma of war. But with national establishments now stuck in the mire of Cold War fears, Many of the matters of social unrest which had been developing in Western societies for a long time boiled over. The African-American civil rights movement reached a high point of conflict and rebellion in the 1950s and 60s. Civil disobedience actions were rife and African-American women played no less a part than their male counterparts. Rosa Parks' resistance on an Alabama bus provides the most famous example of this defying the socialized demands that, because of the color of her skin, she had to sit at the back of the bus. Twelve years before her famous act of resistance, Parks had been humiliated by the same bus driver. In 1943, she had gotten on a bus at the front, paid for her ticket, and the driver, James Blake, had told her to get off and reboard from the back, as the law stated she must. When she refused, he grabbed her, attempting to throw her off. She dropped her purse and, retrieving it, defiantly sat in a whites-only seat. When she saw his reaction, she told him, quote, I will get off the bus. You better not hit me. End quote. She promptly got off the bus and he drove off. Apparently what she feared when she looked into the man's angry eyes, bearing all the hateful racism and sexism that his contemporary society told him was appropriate and okay, was violence. What made her get off the bus 12 years before she famously refused was the threat of violence, which is at the core of why women for so long have had to remain subjected to men. In the years between her meetings with driver James Blake, Rosa Parks became renowned in her area for her rebellious insistence on boarding buses at the white door and generally causing angst to bus drivers. When Parks and Blake met again in December 1955, Rosa was seated in the middle of the bus next to a black man and across from two black women. The whites only front section of the bus in the middle section filled up and when a single white male boarded and stood behind Blake, 
it caused Blake to tell them to vacate a seat for him. The law stipulated that if the front of the bus was full, it was at the driver's discretion whether to make the middle section available to whites over blacks. And in this discretion, they had police power. The other three, according to Parks, stood up reluctantly. But Parks decided that enough was enough. As she put it, she, quote, had been pushed as far as I could stand to be pushed, end quote. Interestingly, the social etiquette regarding seating said that a woman should never have to give up her seat to a man. Fellow civil rights activist Joanne Robertson, a co-organizer of the Montgomery bus boycott that would arise from Park's initial defiance, later said, quote, it didn't seem logical, particularly for a woman to give way to a man, end quote. This shows how very entrenched ideas of gender roles and positions became in society. If Rosa were a man, would the event have captured the imagination of the civil rights movement as it did and become so entrenched in the lexicon of the pursuit for black liberties? When the police arrived to take Rosa off the bus, she could have been forgiven for being terrified. She was not the first to actively resist public segregation and the black community knew of the abuse with which police treated them. Women, as always, risked the greatest assault. Parks said later, quote, I was well aware of what could have happened or might have happened to me other than being arrested if they still wished to physically abuse me, end quote. A student member of the NAACP, Doris Crenshaw, said that amongst the black community, people spoke of, quote, women being pulled off the bus and raped and not arrested, end quote. The 1960s was the age of protest movements, the pursuit for social progress and justice. It happened globally, but most identifiably within the US. Black civil rights, anti-war, anti-nuclear, sexual freedom, and women's rights activism all became embedded in the fabric of 1960s US society. This would be the chance for feminism's second wave to overcome the trough into which the fight for women's rights had fallen. One could argue that there were two catalysts which caused the second wave of feminism to truly erupt. The first was the release of the book The Feminine Mystique by Betty Friedan. The second was a change in the way that women within other social movements began to see themselves, particularly in America during the 60s and 70s. In 1957, after conducting a survey of her former college classmates at their 15th anniversary reunion, Betty Friedan noticed that an alarming amount of women were profoundly unhappy living as housewives. These results motivated her to begin research for what would become The Feminine Mystique, which was published in February of 1963. The book follows housewives from all around the United States who were dissatisfied with their lot in life. Many were facing existential crises, even though they had all the maternal comforts that marriage and children brought. Frieden called this, quote, the problem that has no name, end quote. In the book, she questions every aspect of society, women's magazines, women's treatments by the educational system, women in the workplace. Essentially, she challenged the belief in American society at the time that as a woman, all one had to do to achieve fulfillment was become a housewife. She found that the hard truth and reality was that women were not allowed individual identities, Society identified them purely in terms of the perceptions, needs, whims, and demands of the men. Readers around America and the world consumed the feminine mystique, 
Within a year, it had become the best-selling non-fiction book in America, selling over a million copies. Mainly women were reading this book, and the ideology was striking a painful chord in them, a truth which had been suppressed for decades. It opened the door for conversations to be had amongst women, and within these conversations, solidarity could be found. Frieden's research involved interviewing many suburban housewives, researching the psychology around women, the media, advertising. She intended on publishing an article on the topic, uh, but no magazine would publish her work. Not one to back down, she instead wrote the book. There wasn't a lot of opportunity for female writers or journalists. One of the most renowned was Gloria Steinem. Gloria was a freelance journalist who in 1963 became widely popular in feminist circles. She went undercover as a Playboy bunny waitress at the Playboy Club and published a diary which documented her experiences. In her diary, she stated that the Playboy bunny waitresses were being mistreated as they were being exploited for the benefit of the male customers at the Playboy Club. Steinem became a fighting force throughout the 60s for women's rights and by 1968, she was one of the most influential figures pushing for legalized abortion and federal-funded daycare. Many of the women who started the second wave of feminism in the 1960s were female activists within other social movements of the time, who became aware of how disrespectful they were being treated by their male counterparts. Female activists had joined the civil rights movement to fight against racial discrimination, feeling empathy and kingship with others facing oppression. African-American women were essentially the glue of the movement, organizing actions and campaigning for black rights. One of the most influential women of color, whose influence on the growth of the women's liberation movement would be great, was Frances Beale. Her mother was a Russian Jewish immigrant and her father an African-American of Native American heritage. She knew what discrimination felt like. She lived it every day of her life. In many of the civil rights meetings, men were taken to the stage telling their sisters not to use birth control as it was the white man's way of controlling the African-American population. They pushed the idea that the African-American society needed numbers in order to fight against oppression. The right to choose over pregnancy was at the heart of the women's liberation movement, along with equal pay and childcare. And on this point, there was a clash between the perceptions over how to attain black civil rights and what mattered in women's liberation. Men attempted to control what a woman does with her body, is just a different form of oppression. The patriarchy had taken over the movement. To these men, the only issue which mattered was race, not gender. And they would only fight to change what they felt was wrong. Beale would stand up and speak against it, with often terse and angry responses from the male civil rights activists in the room. The division was palpable. Quote, I was in the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, you're talking about liberation and freedom half the night on the racial front? And then all of a sudden, men are going to turn around and start talking about putting you in your place. So in 1968, we founded the SNCC's Black Women's Liberation Committee to take up some of these issues. End quote. This was the final piece of evidence in a long line of personal experiences which made Fran realize a very important truth. That for her, as a black woman, there were two equally important struggles that of her race, and that of her gender. And so she turned her attentions into the Women's Liberation Movement in 1968, when she co-founded the Black Women's Liberation Committee, which later became the Black Women's Alliance, 
and by 1969 had evolved into the Third World Women's Alliance. The achievement Fran is most well known for is an essay entitled Double Jeopardy, To Be Black and Female. It's a killer title. It became the SNCC's new official stance on women. In the essay, she explores how the varying yet complex struggles arise, which ultimately create future limitations, are both similar in gender and race discrimination, and how extremely debilitating the compounded effect can be on black women's lives. The Third World Women's Alliance's mission was to globally assist marginalized women in disadvantaged communities fighting social injustice. Their aim was to confront race and class issues on both a political and societal level, calling this universal womanhood. Fran went on to become involved in CESA, which was a committee fighting to put an end to forced and abusive sterilizations. This type of sterilization had been taking place in Puerto Rico, which later caused the Puerto Rican Women's Liberation Group to start up fighting for these changes. The CESA specifically assisted in attaining justice for poor women of color or ethnic minorities who were either being coerced or forced into involuntary sterilizations. She also became a member of the National Anti-Racist Organization Committee, where she focused on establishing anti-racist policies. She maintained a life of activism all while developing a career as both an editor and a writer. She worked as an associate editor of The Black Scholar, and later she reported for the San Francisco Bayview. Fran also became the editor of the Third World Women's Alliance newspaper, and she contributed as an editor for the National Council of Negro Women. She even wrote a sequel to Double Jeopardy to be black and female. It was called Triple Jeopardy, The Black Woman's Voice, which was well received. Through all of this constant hard work, Fran was still a mother. So basically, she was like Superman, but just more badass because you know she was the female version. Through all of her work, Fran turned the injustice and pain she had experienced into a force devoted to change both laws and social ideologies. At no point in time did she back away from her objective. She knew the only way to safeguard freedoms was to constantly fight for them. She also understood the importance of not standing by when something you are involved in is becoming the evil it fights. By 1965, Casey Hayden and Mary King, who had both been actively working in the SNCC, published an in-depth memo called Sex and Caste, a kind of memo. This memo discussed how many women working for the SNCC's civil rights organization were experiencing gender inequality an organization which in itself was fighting against racial discrimination in the workplace. This memo was sent to over 40 feminist activist groups around America, and it helped make awareness of just how normalized gender inequality had become. The memo's success prompted these activists to start women's meetings to discuss such issues. Women's liberation was flying, but there was still no formal organization to drive it forward. Like all good movements, the feminists on the ground took their opportunities but at every turn they faced the barrage of social misogyny against which they fought. During one anti-war demonstration to protest the election of Richard Nixon, activist Marilyn Webb stood up on stage with the purpose of announcing that a women's movement had been formed. As she stood on the stage, the audience, which was majority men, began catcalling, whistling, and screaming things like, Take her off the stage and fuck her! Or, Drag her down the alley! The women in the audience were disgusted. These were movement men, social warriors, 
who they expected would support them. But now they realize just how important a concerted, legitimized organization would be. Heather Booth and Naomi Weistein founded the Women's Radical Action Project, or RAP. RAP organized consciousness-raising meetings for women to discuss intimate personal issues and analyze the politics behind social injustices impacting women. In these meetings, which were held between 1965 and 1966, groups of women would gather together and voice their concerns and experiences. The meetings began as a space for women to share experiences they had had throughout life. From the embarrassment a young girl faces when buying tampons, to a woman who has suffered through sexual assault but never ushered a word of it. They challenged the conceptions of masculinity, femininity and the American white man. As they had no official meeting spaces, most of these meetings took place either in university classrooms or participants' private homes. Probably the most important thing which occurred as a result of these gatherings, women all around America had began to realize that they were not alone in suffering and that they were not to blame for this mistreatment they were exposed to. They noticed that this way of life had become normalized in society, which resulted in these women's meetings growing into a very well-organized, effective, radicalized social movement. Two important organizations emerged from this, the National Organization for Women, or NOW, and the Women's Liberation Movement. In 1966, after the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, failed to carry out the Civil Rights Act of 1964, this was a mandate to end sexual discrimination in employment. A group of 28 women, frustrated with the federal government not enforcing the anti-discrimination laws, gathered in Betty Friedan's hotel room and created the National Organization for Women. They wrote the acronym NOW on a napkin and out of these three letters, a new chapter would begin in the fight for women's rights. By October of that same year, an additional 21 women and men would join the ranks of now. During the second wave of feminism, women realized that it would not only be through legislation that challenges facing women would be solved. Societal roles had to be redefined and reimagined. And this could only happen through education. Thus, to many members of the women's liberation movement, rejecting sexism was an important objective used to banish discrimination against women. At this stage, women had minimal career aspects. An example of this is an advertisement in a newspaper in the 1960s, advertising a job vacancy for a secretary. It reads, quote, Just finished your BA? Woman looking for a perfect job as a secretary for an attractive business executive? If you work well and are the right fit, you may end up his wife. The idea that a man was a woman's prize as a career goal was ridiculous. That should have ended with, if you work well and are the right fit, you might end up with his job. So employment discrimination became the first issue tackled. Between 1967 and 1978, now achieved the following legal victories for women's rights within the American judicial system. In 1967, the executive order extending full affirmative action rights to women. In 1972, the Women's Educational Equality Act was passed for equal education. In 1974, the Title X for Women's Health and Family Planning was passed and the Equal Credit Opportunity Act. And in 1978, the Pregnancy Discrimination Act. Along with all of these laws now fought to change, they also pushed to change how the Supreme Court dealt with cases involving discrimination against women. 
In June of 1967, a woman called Jo Freeman attended her first free school course on women at the University of Chicago, led by Booth and Weisstein. Captivated by what these women were doing, Freeman invited the two ladies to organize a women's workshop at the National Conference of New Politics during Labor Weekend in Chicago. Many of the women who attended the National Conference of New Politics decided to group together to push forward one agenda. Freeman and Shulamath Firestone led them. The group of women tried to present their own demands to the plenary sessions, but they were told their resolution was not important enough to discuss. After much back and forth, the director of the conference, William F. Pepper, refused to recognize any of the women waiting to speak. This mistreatment caused five women to rush to the podium, demanding to know why. As Firestone approached the podium, William patted Firestone on the head and said, quote, Cool down, little girl. We have more important things to talk about than women's liberation. End quote. This event caused Freeman and Firestone to organize weekly meetings at Freeman's apartment on the west side of Chicago. They invited all the women who attended the free school courses and the National Conference of New Politics. They called this the West Side Group, and they inspired Freeman to begin a newsletter called Voice of the Women's Liberation Movement, which became available all over the states. Following the praise this newsletter received, Freeman changed the West Side Group's name to the Women's Liberation Group. By the end of 1967, at the Students' Democratic Society National Conference, the Women's Liberation released a manifesto which stated that the relationship between women and men mirrored that of a relationship between a colonial power and its colonies and that this was a destructive relationship. It stated that this relationship needed to be changed through not only men taking responsibility for chauvinism, but also men changing their behaviors through complete reprogramming. And that women's responsibility was to demand full participation in any male activities, as well as not accepting chauvinistic behavior. By this point in time, many radical women in America had started to believe that both freedom and now had become too mainstream and timid. Now believed in working within the legal and social systems to change existing laws as a way to end gender oppression. This way of protest clashed with radical feminists opposed to the existing structures. Within a year, many of the women who started in the West Side group would go on to start up many other women's liberation groups throughout the USA, creating an even more radical group of women in America. One of these was Firestone. In 1967, Firestone left Chicago to return to New York, where, with Pamela Allen, she founded the New York Radical Woman. This was a radical feminist group, my favorite type of ladies, who followed the ideology that the personal is the political and sisterhood is powerful. Two mottos born from consciousness raising meetings in New York. Two mottos that would spread to other women liberation groups across the country and become the driving force at feminist rallies. The idea that the problems an individual faces is directly linked to the political atmosphere which exists brings cause to all gender inequality. Arguably, this is a truth which can be applied to civil rights racial discrimination, and many other problems attacking human rights. The idea was for women to self-examine without the scrutiny of men. Slowly, this more radical women's movement took the nation by storm. Groups started in Seattle, the Bread and Roses started up in Boston, the Women's Liberation Group started up in Berkeley. All of the individual sectors 
dealt and fought for different issues affecting women's rights. And here we see the real strength of this wave of feminism and how they came about achieving what gains they made. They diversified small groups focused on specific issues within the wider movement. They were women's liberation groups for publishing women's literature, for childcare facilities, for abortion, for birth control. Women even went about creating means which would stop other women being forced to choose backdoor abortions. Instead, setting up groups who learned how to conduct them safely. These illegal but absolute life-saving abortionists were known as Janes. There were groups fighting to change laws, groups fighting sexual abuse and harassment, groups for women's sexuality and sexual pleasure, groups who formed street patrols at night to keep women safe, called Reclaim the Night, and a group who set up counselling for women. There were groups for literally any woman's issue which existed. They held all sorts of demonstrations, events and protests. They had a protest outside the New York Times with boards reading, Women and typewriters are not inseparable. They dressed up as witches outside of Congress. They burned their university degrees to protest the lack of women's studies as a subject. They demonstrated gender role reversal on Wall Street, walking around whistling at men saying things like, Look at the legs on that one. Those tight pants, they really bring out the best in you. The first American National Conference of Women's Liberation was held in Illinois at Lake Villa in 1968. By June of the same year, the New York Radical Woman published Notes from the First Year. The booklet contained transcripts, memos, essays, speeches and ideologies from consciousness-raising meetings all around the USA. Issues such as abortion, the female orgasm and how would my life have been different if I were a boy were all discussed. One event in September 1968, however, solidified the women's liberation movement's place in history. When the New York Radical Woman protested the Miss America beauty pageant. This protest made headlines in newspapers the following day, despite cameramen being prohibited by the pageant to sell or use any of the footage. The New York Radical Woman wanted to showcase how ironic an event was which used what society believed to be external beauty as a measure for woman's worth, labeling this as, quote, the degrading, mindless, boob, girly symbol, end quote. The New York radical woman compared beauty pageants with livestock competitions at county fairs. To illustrate this, the woman even crowned a live sheep outside the beauty pageant. The objective of the protest outside the venue was to burn objects of female oppression in trash cans, which they called freedom trash cans, on the Atlantic City boardwalk. They called these objects instruments of female torture, and it included bras, typing textbooks, housewife guidebooks, mops, and hair dryers. As the authorities prohibited them from using open fires, the woman pretended to burn these items. The next day, some newspaper ran of headlines talking about burning bras, and so the myth of burning bras became an iconic image of the women's liberation movement. Inside the venue, the New York radical woman had a separate protest planned. As Deborah Snodgrass was crowned Miss America and began giving her speech, four women who had bought tickets for the balcony dropped a huge banner from the balcony. The banner read, Women's Liberation. This was the first time the whole world saw those words. And as the security was dragging the four women out of the event, they continued shouting, Women's Liberation! Women's Liberation! 200 women from the women's liberation movement attended the event. 
A few blocks away, the civil rights movement held their own beauty pageant at the Ritz-Carlton Hotel. They crowned the first Miss Black America, Sandra Williams. By 1969, significant changes and developments occurred within the women's liberation movement. The New York radical women split into two separate factions. It had become by far the most radical group within the women's liberation movement. But of so many radical ideas, it makes sense that there would be differences in opinion. It split into the politicos and the feminists. The difference between these two reflected that between feminists in Britain after World War I. The politicos wanted to combat the idea that feminists were man-haters. Instead, they believed the system was flawed and by focusing on changing gender inequality through politics within the already existing structure, they would achieve equality. This group called themselves Women's International Terrorist Conspiracy from Hell, which and they protested at events such as the 1969 Miss America pageant. The other faction was the feminists. They believed the only way to rid society of gender inequality was through fighting and reprogramming sexism and gender stereotypes. They became known as the Red Stockings, and they protested at events such as the hearing of the New York State Joint Legislation Committee on Abortion. They protested that the whole hearing was a joke, as 14 men and one woman had no business in making decisions that solely affected women. It seems that even in spite of schisms, in no way did the different members slow their activity down. In 1969, the women's liberation movement also began to become absorbed somewhat by the mainstream. In the media, the movement was featured in Life, Newsweek, Times, and an award-winning article in the New York Magazine by Gloria Steinem, which served to really put the movement into the international spotlight. But, perhaps most excitingly, also in this year, a splinter group of female activists that focused on lesbian rights was born. A group called the Women's Caucus of Chicago Gay Liberation was formed by Michelle Brody, E. Child, Margaret Sloan, Vernetta Gray, and a few other women. A year later, they changed their name to the Chicago Lesbian Liberation and formed consciousness-raising Monday night meetings. Sadly, the Chicago Lesbian Liberation was met with the same discrimination by now, which the women who formed now had experienced within student movements. This was illustrated in 1970, when at a now meeting, Betty Friedan, wanting to publicly sever any association of lesbians, called the Chicago lesbian liberation activists, quote, a lavender menace within the movement, end quote. Due to much controversy with the lesbian activists in the Chicago lesbian liberation and differences in opinion of in now, Frieden stepped down as its president. This was a pretty similar process to the one that we saw in the first episode of this podcast series, when we were looking at the suffragette movement in Britain that had taken place 50 years before. The common goal was the same for everyone involved in the movement, to end discrimination against women. However, this did not disallow for discrimination to arise in other regards. In World War I, women who were more radical, or perhaps did not support the war, were ostracized by their counterparts for these differences of opinion. So too was the case of lesbian activists from amidst the more mainstream women's liberation movement. Rather than allow this to dishearten the Chicago lesbian liberation, the women embraced the term. They organized a protest which took place at the Second Congress to Unite Women. Halfway through the Congress, 
all the Chicago Lesbian Liberation members in the audience stood up, took off their shirts, revealing a hidden lavender-colored t-shirt with the term Lavender Menace printed on the front. Many historians and sociologists credited the women's liberation movement as being a helping hand or inspirational source for the lesbian rights movement, which began emerging from the 70s and gaining popularity in the 90s. By 1970, the women's liberation movement was at its highest point in terms of popularity, progress, activity and followers. The largest event the women's liberation ever organized was on the 26th of August 1970, the Women's Strike for Equality. The event was spearheaded by Betty Friedan and sponsored by NOW and held on the 50th anniversary of the 19th Amendment which had finally given women the right to vote in the US. They were protesting for rights on three different issues, legal and widely available abortion, free and widely available childcare, and most importantly, equal opportunity and equal pay in the workforce. The objective of the demonstration was for women all around America to do no work whatsoever, whether in the workplace or at home for husbands and or fathers. This was something which would be repeated in more recent years in Iceland. They had slogans like, don't iron while the strike is hot. The point was to make everyone aware of how important women were within society and how without women, even for a day, society would fall apart. In New York alone, 50,000 women marched through the streets. Holy shit balls! In photographs, you can't even see Fifth Avenue, just a sea of women. By this stage, many men had joined the movement and marched alongside their mothers, sisters and daughters. By far, the most impressive part of the protests were the women who hid huge banners in their shirts and pants. They managed to get right to the top of the Statue of Liberty, where they hung their banners. The male security guards of the Statue of Liberty even refused to force the women to remove the banners. These women had not only managed to group together, finding answers from each other, but they managed to change many laws in favor of women's rights. They made the world aware of the small everyday discriminations women faced, which by that point in time had become normalized in our society. Possibly one of the most helpful achievements was when nine different women's liberation groups in the US came together to create services which benefited more than 1,500 women across America. These nine groups managed to create abortion and contraceptive counseling facilities, personal and vocational consultants, a suicide hotline for women, a monthly newsletter for women. They created a library of feminist works, gave lectures on women's rights, and taught courses of self-defense for women. The women's liberation groups also did not allow a lack of facilities and equipment to hinder their progress. In 1970, when the Crenshaw Women's Center opened in LA, they had nothing to use at their meetings as chairs. So, all participants brought pillows from home to use as seats. Later on, they collected unwanted second-hand furniture and even went as far as developing a children's playground for women with children who attended the evening meetings. These women managed to use discarded material to build an area for their children, something many corporate businesses had not even managed to do for their female staff. The second wave of feminism started in 1963 and lasted until the late 70s, beginning of the 80s. But the women's liberation movement really started breaking down around 1972. There were so many reasons which caused the downfall of the movement. 
One of the main issues had to do with the structure and organization of the movement. Although thousands of women liberation organizations were formed all across the USA between the 60s and 70s, finding an organization to join proved to be quite challenging. Due to a lack of structure, organization and communication between all the branches, one could not even locate organizations in the phone book. It made the movement seem invisible for people attempting to join. So, although small, unconnected groups and loose, cooperative organization are very effective for building awareness and creating conversations, more structure was really required if awareness and discussions would ever turn into actual ongoing actions. Another challenge the movement faced was simply a lack of public spaces which women could use for their meetings. What added to this problem was the fact that certain urban areas were either unsafe for groups of women or areas facing racial segregation. On top of all of these hindrances, up until 1974, women were denied credit without permission of a man. This made it near impossible for these women to rent spaces for meetings. Also, by 1973, the political atmosphere in the USA had dramatically changed. The oil crisis, combined with society's reaction to the radicalized 60s, sent the US into a state of economical stagnation and political conservativeness. A more conservative environment began to break apart the solidarity and following of the women's liberation movement. As women born today, we cannot truly grasp what life was like for women before the 60s. Birth control was not available, abortion was illegal, Marital rape was okay, abuse against women was normalized, the cultural restrictions on a woman's dress code was extremely controlling, childcare was almost non-existent, maternity leave didn't exist. Society's attitude towards women in the Western Hemisphere resembled that of a farmer and his livestock. The women of the second wave of feminism stood up against institutionalized, political, social, economical sexism, against a culture of misogyny. By the early 80s, gender stereotypes were breaking down. Many oppressive laws had been changed. Most notably, Roe v. Wade in 1973 had opened the door for legal abortions in the US. Women, individually and collectively, earned positions in wider varieties of fields. Women could work for NASA or the military, and women had gained the deserved control over their bodies and appearance. Very importantly was also that from 1970, Women's studies had emerged as a legitimate field of study. San Diego State University was the first to offer any such course. The women's liberation movement had spread across the West, inspiring similar movements in places such as Egypt, parts of the Middle East, Asia, Latin America and Africa. Books written by these feminists about women's bodies and health issues had been translated into multiple languages and adapted into multiple cultures around the world. Although so many achievements were made, the fight was by no means over, as many important laws remained unchanged. If the Comprehensive Child Care Development Bill of 1972 had been passed into law, it would have created a national daycare service, especially designed to make it easier for single parents, who were mainly women, to work. President Nixon, however, feared the communalism of such service, as well as what he saw as threats to the family structure showing that he was completely out of touch with real life. He vetoed the bill and consigned generations of Americans to the struggle of having to work without being able to afford childcare. In 1982, the Equal Rights Amendment to the US Constitution also failed, not for the first time. 
It continues to this day to be a proposal, but if brought into law would guarantee equal gender rights for all US citizens and end legal distinctions in things like employment and property. It's not that the women's lib movement ended, but more that life went on and cultures, politics and society all followed. The end of this stage of the women's liberation movement, the second wave of feminism, opened the door for another very important human rights movement, the push for what is today known as LGBTQIA rights. The women's liberation movement achieved what it sought out to do. It liberated women, even in ways we had not even realized we needed to be liberated. Before the women's liberation movement, women had become stuck in some form of limbo. They were needed, allowed, and tolerated in society. But their existence ceased to expand beyond this point. This limitation created a submissive insecurity, which became like an invisible ball and chain, one weighing women down, never allowing them to aim for or realize their true potential as individuals or as part of society. By the 60s, the intense wave of energy racing through the US at that specific point in time and history created an opportunity. One which at first a few brave and defined women decided to explore. But within 10 years, tens of thousands of confident women poured out into the streets. These were women saying things to men they never before dreamt of saying. Things like, no, and I don't wanna, and shut the fuck up. These women had helped each other hand in hand, empowering each other, and in so doing had reshaped themselves and each other into a strong energy, which was ready to kick any ass standing in its way. And in the next episode, we'll see that energy explode in the media and on stage, showing how women could rock out if out their cocks out during the third wave of feminism. Thank you, Dom, for filling us in further on the when, where, how, and why of the women's liberation movement in the 60s and 70s United States. Whilst lying around at home, not having to do anything because Dom was doing all the work, I did a bit of research into this whole story myself and also found a quote from a man at the time, a newsreader. He was reporting on the women's strike in 1970. Quote, So remember, men, if you come to work tomorrow and your secretary refuses to do the filing and then go home and find that your wife refuses to do the cooking, don't blame them. Remember, you gave them the vote 50 years ago. This is Mike Scott, male chauvinist, TV9 Eyewitness News. Mike Scott, you're a dick. Unfortunately, not everything was able to make the final cut of this episode, but if you go to our brand spanking new website, you will find an awesome addendum story in the show notes. Check it out. Also, a massive thank you to iTunes reviewer Trillia03. Words cannot express how much your words meant to us. Truly, thank you. Keep listening and loving, and as emotional as it may get, please keep telling your friends. Joe Wegasani, male sh- Joe Agassani, male feminist, stuff what you tell me podcast. This has been a production by Republic of Amsterdam Radio.